grab your Bibles and get comfy, and let's get to our study in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, we left off last time in Ezekiel chapter 14. So why don't you turn there, Ezekiel 14, for our study. Some people might say uh, the Bible's redundant um, because it takes a theme and sometimes really camps out on that theme for a long, long time. And you might say, man, we're getting tiresome. This is tiresome or tiring. But I think sometimes that's the point. Um, it's almost like the Lord would want us to get weary of the behavior that we're seeing over and over and over again from the children of Israel. And hopefully so much so that at some point we recognize those human nature tendencies that we see in the people of Israel, we see the same tendencies in us. That's the thing that I think is so profound is that the Old Testament, as many thousands of years ago, people haven't changed all that much. Oh, some of the things have changed as far as you know, their exact actions, but what was behind their sin, same old, same old. Uh, we're doing exactly the same stuff that they were doing. Um, we're doing the same stuff today. and, and um, and we're gonna see that again tonight. Um, and we're gonna start right there in Ezekiel uh, chapter 14. Uh, as it's where we left off. Now, Ezekiel's gonna deal with an issue um, here in Ezekiel 14, uh, where the people, they, they needed to be told of their ugly condition. Um, isn't it funny how we often think we're better than we really are? Um, it's a little bit like, um, I remember when, when uh, I was a kid growing up and I'd be playing my electric guitar with my, you know, um, 400 watt PV musician amplifier for, uh, I think it was four eight inch speakers if I recall, <laughs> maybe 12 inch speakers, I forget. But uh, it was a big cabinet with a amp head, huge, you know, 80s rock and roll. And I had my guitar and man, when I was in my room playing, I thought I was in front of, you know, Carnegie Hall or whatever, or in some stadium playing my guitar. And I thought I sounded awesome. And my dad would just poke his head in the, in the door and say, hey, Brett, um, you always sound better to yourself than you sound to everyone else. Now, some parents would say, that's horrible parenting. That's so discouraging. And you're gonna hurt his little, you know, self-esteem and all that. My dad knew exactly what I needed to hear. He knew <laughs> that I needed to realize there's, there's um, re reality. And, um, you know, and I, I'm so thankful for that kind of an upbringing because um, first of all, you gotta rem remember to be humble and not think you're as good as you really are. The children of Israel, they have sort of put on a happy face. They've put on a religious face to sort of cover the horrible sin that they were committing. I was reading about the tomb of uh, King Tutankhamun there in Egypt, King Tut. And uh, I was marveling once again at the, what an amazing archeological find that was uh, to begin with. But when they found the sarcophagus or the coffin as we might call it, um, what an amazing find that was. Um, they took, it was huge, this huge gold you know, uh, sarcophagus. And as they opened the first one up, there was another coffin inside that coffin. Um, the first coffin was big and it was beautiful. It was covered, by the way, this is amazing. It was covered, it was wood covered in gold, the first layer. And, um, and the Egyptians uh, poured five gallons, they said, of this sappy oil black stuff, kind of a tar um, over the gold to preserve it, uh, to keep it from you know, getting bad. Like it was all this gold, they got it all shiny and gold and then they covered it with black tar. 
<laughs> so they peeled the tar off and found this perfectly preserved gold coffin. They opened that one and there's another golden coffin inside that one. And so they opened that one and there was another golden coffin. The difference was the first one was wood covered in gold. The second one was wood covered in gold. The third one was just solid gold, the coffin. So when they cracked that one open, they found a golden clothing covering this mummy. It was golden clothes. And that's where you'll see that most famous mask um, of King Tut. If you Google it, you can see it. It's, uh, it's the mask of King Tut. And, um, and it, it covered his, um, uh, you know, his, his face. So he had golden clothes, golden face. But when they pulled that off, what did they find? A deteriorated skeleton with a leathery skin. Uh, and it was kind of a horrifying thing. You can put as much gold on that as you want, but it's still dead. It's still, you know, putrefying. It's still decaying. Uh, even though the Egyptians, you got to give them credit for, you know, their embalming practices, and they they did preserve uh, amazingly. I mean, if if, that, if you're into that sort of thing, I'm not because when I die, this body, whatever. It's all about going to heaven. Uh, it's not about trying to make my body on earth all awesome like the Egyptians did. Well, all that to say, I was thinking about the Egyptians' practice of trying to make this dead body beautiful with coffin after coffin, layer after layer, gold after gold, but it was still death. And I feel like that's really where the people of Ezekiel are at. There's death all around them. Jerusalem is dying because of their sin and it's putrefying and decaying, but they're trying to put a happy face on it and they're covering it up with even a pseudo religion. They had sort of this, you know, oh yes, worship the Lord. And oh yeah, Ezekiel, we love you and you're awesome and good for you, you're prophesying of God. And they started putting on this, this face, but it was still death. And that's part of what these next chapters are gonna be dealing with. Ezekiel's gonna call them out and say, no, you guys are uh, horrible. Uh, and he's not gonna pull any punches. You're, you're gonna hear tonight maybe that these Jews during this time might just be some of the most horrible people that ever lived on the earth. Overstatement, well, who would you say is the most horrible people that ever lived on the earth? Um, well, uh, you might say the men of Sodom and Gomorrah, they might've been the most, because God, I mean, what city did God just say, yeah, that city's gotta go. Uh, and so fire and brimstone crushes the city and it's just erased from history and nobody knows where it even was. People have ideas uh, archeologically, but nobody's really confirmed uh, for sure. But man, just a little brown spot on the earth where Sodom used to sit because God said, I'm done with them. Well, Brett, surely the Jews weren't worse than the men of Sodom. We're gonna see, the Lord says, you wanna bet? Uh, tonight, uh, the Jews are gonna get pretty much hammered by Ezekiel uh, with the truth. And if the truth hurts, well, you gotta deal with it. And really, the Jews are gonna have to deal with this and Ezekiel's gonna lay it out heavy. So let's pick it up here in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse one. It says, then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me and sat before me. Now, pause for a second, remember, Ezekiel, it was one of the earlier deportations from Jerusalem into Babylon. So Ezekiel's in Babylon and the elders of Israel are in Babylon. These are some of the first deportees. There's still a remnant in Jerusalem, but they're gonna be crushed later in 586 BC in that final wave. And that's, that's gonna be the end of it. 
But Ezekiel, remember, he's there in Babylon sitting with some of the elders of Israel. And it says in verse two, and the word of the Lord came unto me saying, son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak unto them and say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and cometh to the prophet, I the Lord will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols that I may take the house of Israel in their own heart because they are all estranged from me through their idols. Interesting, what's the Lord gonna do? He's gonna meet them right where they're at. You want idols? I'm gonna meet, meet. now the, the question is, what is the Lord saying here? Uh, according to your idolatry that's going on in your heart. See, that's the interesting thing. It seems that maybe these Jews that have been deported from Judah with Ezekiel and, and earlier with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those, that, those deportations, it seems that maybe they didn't bring their physical idols but the idolatry that they were worshiping, that those idols represented, were still you know, percolating in their hearts. They were still worshiping those idols in their hearts, which is the only thing that matters. That's uh, what's going on in there. Um, you know, it's interesting because um, we've talked about that. Uh, that's where these people might be more relatable to us today, because you don't have, hopefully, a Moloch idol in your backyard where you sacrifice babies on the arms of it. Hopefully, you don't have a Buddha or a Baal or a Ashtoreth or a Diana or idols, you know, sitting around. That, that's, that's, a Christian doesn't do that. But, you know, you might say in those days, <coughs> excuse me, a good Jew wouldn't do that either. And so now they're in Babylon in captivity and these elders sit down before Ezekiel uh, acting, you know, like we wanna, we wanna hear from the Lord. We wanna talk with you, Ezekiel, and, and, and inquire of the Lord. And, and the Lord says, really? You wanna talk to me? Well, I'll meet with you according to your idols. And, and that might mean that he was gonna be silent because idols are silent. Uh, or the Lord might punish them according to how many idols they were worshiping in their hearts. But the idea is the Lord's not gonna deal with them. But Brett, they're coming sincerely wanting to hear from the Lord. No, that's the problem. They were playing games with God and saying, yeah, Ezekiel, we wanna, we wanna worship the Lord. We, we wanna come and hear from you. Meanwhile, in their hearts, sin was rampant. You know, this is a hard thing. Uh, I've had to kind of reconcile this in my own personal ministry because there are times where you have to say, is, there, is this person that's coming to inquire the Lord or ask for help or prayer or whatever, should we even entertain those uh, thoughts or those um, in, inquiries or desires? Uh, that's a big question. And, um, and there's been times where the Lord has revealed to me with certain people, you need to stop praying with them you need to stop giving them advice until they're willing to repent of their sins. I'll tell you a story of a guy that I was, this is, you know, decades ago. There was a guy that would come to church every Sunday with a big Bible and it was marked and had markers and colors. And he just had the look of a just good Christian guy smiling, hey, worshiping, lifting his hands at worship. And then he'd come up, hey, press, I need you to pray for me. I'm going through some really hard things with this and my finances. And the problem was I'd counseled this guy enough to know he had a problem with lust and he was living with girls. He'd have girls move in with him. 
uh, and they just stay for a while and then they'd leave and then he'd get another girl living with them. And, and he just kind of had this thing uh, where he was unwilling to repent of something uh, that was just sinful and wrong. And he kept coming and, and so finally, I, he'd, hey Brad, I need you to pray for me. You know, come up, he'd come up with the Bible, say, I'd say, wait, 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 before I pray with you, have you, have you made right the wrongs that you're doing with the area of sexual promiscuity? And is there a girl living with you right now? Oh yeah, you, pray, you know me, <laughs> you know my struggles. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I do, but I'm not gonna pray for you. Well, why wouldn't, you're a pastor. You're supposed to pray for me. And I, I would say, nope, not gonna pray for you. Why? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Um, I'll tell you what, listen, you make it right and break off your sins. Because uh, the way of the transgressor is hard. How can I pray for you to be blessed when I know that you're not gonna be? Because of what the Bible says. The Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard. And be sure of this, your sins will find you out. And so I've had to, over the years, tell people, yeah, I'm not gonna pray for you. Usually I'll give them something to do. Hey, get, get your living situation where you're no longer living with a girl outside of marriage, having sex with girls outside of marriage, uh, because that's a sinful thing that's gonna hurt your life. So I'm not gonna pray for you. Do that and then we'll come and talk and pray and I'll give you counsel. But do that first, I don't wanna hear from you. <laughs> and the reason I tell you that is maybe you should be careful Christian counselors. You know, people that are talking about their lives and trying to help them. And we, we could be, you know, trying to help them with the things they think are the problem when really there's other issues that nothing's gonna change until they repent of their sins. This is that kind of an occasion where Ezekiel's gonna be told basically, yeah, these guys wanna inquire of the Lord. These guys wanna hear from God through the prophet. Uh, no, <laughs> we're not gonna answer them. That's the idea here because they were unrepentant. They had, they had their idolatry going on in their hearts, their mind, their emotions, the, the inner man, the inner self was still totally engaged with sinful depravity. God forbid that we have that kind of idolatry. You know, it's the same thing, uh, you know, whether it's lust, greed, you know, uh, wanting to be prosperous or have a reputation, uh, you know, like all those things that are sinful human nature kinds of things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those kinds of things, man, that's, that, that, those are things that go on in the heart of man. We don't have the idols as much, but they did in those days that represented those thoughts and notions but here it seems that these guys were having a good show on the outside of purity, but it was in their hearts. Oh Lord, search our hearts like David the psalmist said, search my heart, oh Lord, and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in your way everlasting. Um, this is really what we've got to do as a church is to search our hearts. Let the Lord search out our hearts so that we don't make the mistake of thinking, yeah, Lord, we want to hear from you and we want to read your Bible and we're going to go to church and everything's going to be great. Oh yeah, so I, I have a little problem with, with lust or a little problem with materialism or uh, anger or whatever. Deal with the sin, then go and, and seek the Lord. Um, that's kind of an important thing. So he says, I, I, the Lord, will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols. Interesting stuff. Um, well, um, basically, you know, the Lord might be saying, some translations kind of imply, you'll hear the voice of the idol, which we all know the voice didn't have any idols, or the idols didn't have any voice. Um, verse five, um, uh, that I may take the house of Israel in their own heart because they are all estranged from me through their gods. This shouldn't be a shocker to them because Isaiah the prophet told them in Isaiah 59, the Lord's hand is not short that he cannot touch you and his ear is not deaf that he cannot hear you, but it's your sin 
that separates you from God. And these people are estranged from God now because of their sin. Understand, the Lord does not change. He has not changed. If we are sinful and living sinful lives willingly, now, now, there's a difference, by the way, between somebody who's struggling with sin or uh, stumbles into sin. Uh, there's a difference between that person who somebody's just taking up willfully sinning and saying, yeah, whatever, I'm gonna, seek, I'm gonna go to church, I'm gonna seek the Lord, but I'm gonna keep my little sin over here healthy and strong. Um, that's unrepentance. And so when you're not repentant of your sin, you're not wrestling with your sin and you're just letting it find a home in your heart, then the Lord, there's a separation that happens. And that's the problem here. The Lord says, I'm not gonna meet you and I'm not gonna hear you. Verse six, therefore say unto the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, repent and turn yourselves from your idols and turn away from uh, your faces from all your abominations. For every one of the house of Israel or of the stranger that sojourneth in Israel, which separateth himself from me and setteth up his idols in his heart and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and cometh to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. And I will set my face against that man and will make him a sign and a proverb and I will cut him off from the midst of my people and you shall know that I am the Lord. And verse nine, if the prophet be deceived when he hath spoken a thing, I the Lord hath deceived that prophet and I will stretch out my hand upon him and will destroy him from the midst of, thy, of my people Israel. And they shall bear the uh, punishment of their iniquity and the punishment of the prophet shall e uh, be even as the punishment of him that seeketh unto him that the house of Israel may go no more astray from me, neither be polluted any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, saith the Lord God. Um, if a prophet basically gives you any of these, um, uh, you know, um, uh, messages that are these people that have unrepentant hearts and they're still just totally doing idolatry, um, you know, and you, you give a word, the prophet gives a word to one of these people who he should be saying, you know what, uh, you're out of it. You're, we're, we're not gonna prophesy. We're not gonna give the word of the Lord to you. If that prophet prophesies, he's in trouble. Um, and, and, and the Lord's saying, if a, if a prophet gives that person who's still having idolatry in their hearts and he gives them a word from the Lord, then not only is that guy still in trouble, but that prophet is now in trouble and he's a false prophet. And the Lord's gonna wipe him out, the prophet. That's, that's where I think we as pastors, or if you're a Christian counselor, be careful. Um, you know, there's a fancy word we often use, enabling. Uh, but I think sometimes Christian counselors, we enable because we don't call people out on things that the world doesn't call people out on anymore. Things that the Bible calls sin, and the world says, we celebrate that. Um, and if you're a Christian counselor, well, I gotta be politically correct, I gotta be careful. Nope, that's a lie, and you should not live a lie as a Christian. Um, when somebody's living a lie in their sin, an unrepentant Christian counselor or whatever, you need to speak the truth and hit the, you know, the nail on the head and say, here's what you need to do. Thus saith the Lord, the word of God says, even if it's not popular, even if it's not hip and cool, even if so-called science says that it's wrong, we still speak what the Bible uh, says because the Bible's correct and it always is. Um, and so the prophet that goes and gives the words to these people, 
Um, he's in huge trouble with God uh, and their false prophets. Uh, I love Ezekiel, I love Jeremiah, I love Isaiah, these prophets that were willing to speak the truth even when other prophets were giving more fluffy words that everybody loved to hear. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, um, you know, Isaiah, they gave the words that nobody wanted to hear, but they were still true nonetheless. Um, and I think we need pastors today like Jeremiah, like Isaiah, um, you know, like Ezekiel, who are willing to speak the truth in love, of course, but sometimes things sound pretty brutal when you read the Bible and says, here's what the Bible says, and speaking the truth is not always what people wanna hear, but we need to speak it nonetheless. Well, I love how Ezekiel, he's calling these, these elders of Israel out saying, you guys have idolatry in your heart, I'm not gonna give you the word of the Lord. Verse 12, so then the word of the Lord came again to me saying, son of man, when the land sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out mine hand upon it and will break the staff of the bread thereof and will send famine upon it and will cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. If I cause noisome beasts to pass through the land, like locusts is the idea there, and they spoil it so that the, it destroy, uh, it, it makes it desolate that no man may pass through because of the beasts. Though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, if they're in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters, only they shall be delivered, but the land shall be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon the land and say, sword, go through the land. If, now this is amazing. The, the Lord is saying, if I send locusts or if I send an army through the land with a sword, the Lord says, sword, go do this. It's, it's the nations obey God. The locusts obey God. And so here, if, if um, uh, I, I can't uh, keep reading without talking about why did we bring up Noah and Job and Daniel? Well, there's, it's intriguing to me. These are the greats. And, and in fact, you might even argue these are maybe considered to be the most righteous men that walked the face of the earth. Now we know they all sinned because they were man and all men sinned. But as far as the Bible goes, it's hard to make an argument that Noah was a sinner. We do see him in a drunken stupor at the end, uh, dancing nakedly in his tent. That was a little problem. But, but Noah, if you recall, the Lord destroyed the whole world, everybody in it, except Noah was the one righteous man that God could find in the earth. Um, and so we do give Noah that, that credit and say, yeah, God said he was righteous, he was righteous. Uh, Daniel was a guy that was uh, no record of sin in his book about who, uh, who he was. He was just a solid, Bible-believing, God-fearing kind of guy, if you, if you know what I mean. So you got Noah, Daniel, and then of course, Job. Job is also a guy where we don't have really a record of him sinning, even though he went through horrible suffering and all kinds of adversity. He never cursed God as Satan said he would, and he never uh, you know, did those things. So as, as far as Jewish history goes, now here's what's interesting. Remember, Daniel's still alive at this time, and he's numbered with Noah, Job, and Daniel. In a, in a, excuse me, in a way that's kind of us acknowledging that, excuse me, Daniel was a legend in his own time. That's kind of amazing. Now, by the way, Daniel lived in Babylon where Ezekiel lived on the outside of Babylon uh, um, near the river Kibar, if you remember. 
Um, so whether they knew each other or were friends, we don't know. Um, but it is interesting that Ezekiel says, man, you got your Job, you got your you know, Noah, and you got your Daniel. Uh, a legend in his own time. These are righteous men. Now here's the point of bringing up these three dudes. Ezekiel saying, even if those men were all together in the same city, the Lord would spare them because they were righteous, but he wouldn't spare the city uh, because of the sin that Israel's doing. Um, now this is an interesting theme that we've seen in the Bible because the Bible teaches us over and over and over again, the Lord does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And we know that <clears throat> Daniel, Job, and Noah were righteous. They were declared righteous in the Bible, clear as a bell. And the Lord says, I'm not gonna destroy them. Now, I can't speak for their children and their sons and daughters. That's what it says here. Even you know, their sons and daughters might be judged, uh, um, but not Noah and Daniel themselves and Job because they're the righteous ones. And that's an important thing to know. Um, you cannot be saved because your mother and father were saved. If you're a Christian because your parents were Christians, you don't know what Christianity is. There are people today, this happens both in Islam uh, and in Christianity. Oh, I was born in America, so I'm a Christian. In fact, if you go to the Muslim countries, they all say, yeah, you're, you're all, Americans are all Christians. And, we're, and those of us that are married are like, uh, no, <laughs> not at all. What's a real Christian versus a fake Christian? Well, uh, that's a whole nother discussion, but a Christian is someone who uh, repents of their sin, knows that they're sinners, and believes that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and accepts that free gift of salvation from God through Jesus. And it's by grace that they're saved through faith, just believing that the cross was mighty to save from our sins. And that's what a real Christian is. So just being born in America does not make you a Christian. Um, in the same way, the Lord says, even Noah's sons and Job's sons and Daniel's sons, um, you know, can't speak for them, but we know that Noah, Job, and the Lord would pull them out, the, the righteous, but the rest of the city would be crushed in judgment and wrath. The reason that's important is understand you need your own faith. You need to be declared righteous for yourself. Don't think you can ride on your mother's faith or your grandmother's faith coattails and get to heaven because they dragged you to church when you were six years old. You must be born again. Uh, the soul that sins, it will die. And we're gonna see that in chapter 18, that you can't blame your parents for your sins. Uh, we're gonna see that as well. But this is kind of what's being said. You know, the, the three guys mentioned here, Noah, Job, Daniel, are sort of the cream of the crop. And the Lord's saying, man, even if those dudes lived in these cities, I'd still destroy the cities. I'd pull them out because I never destroy the righteous worth the wicked. Um, by the way, that's one of the reasons why I believe that the rapture of the church is gonna happen before the tribulation because there's no greater time of the Lord pouring out his wrath in all world's history. Even the flood of Noah will not hold a candle compared to the tribulation period. And the Lord says, I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And so you as a Christian who's declared righteous positionally in Christ, you and I can know that we're saved by grace and the Lord does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. So we're not, I believe we're gonna be taken out before the wrath of God is poured out on upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. Um, very important to know that. So uh, that's why Daniel, Job, and Noah are brought up here. These, these, though these, verse 16, you know, um, those these three men were in it. As I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughters they only shall be delivered, but the land shall be desolate. 
Well, he goes on in verse 17, or if I bring a sword upon the land and say, sword, go through the land so that I cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men were in it, as I live, saith Lord God, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they only, the righteous ones, they only shall be delivered themselves. Or if I send pestilence into the land and pour out my fury upon it in blood to cut off uh, from it man and beast, though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, saith the Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter, they shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. For thus saith the Lord God, <clears throat> how much more <clears throat> when I uh, send my four, four sword judgments upon Jerusalem, the sword and the famine and the noisome beast and the pestilence to cut it off from man and beast. Um, the Lord's saying, man, how, how much more will I do this when I judge Jerusalem for their wickedness and their sinfulness? Um, that's the deal. So um, we have some very spiritual people here, Daniel, Job, Noah, uh, don't think you're gonna be protected by your association with someone else. Uh, just because you're associated with someone else doesn't save you from the wrath. Uh, you, you need to be declared righteous like Noah, Job, and Daniel. Uh, the way, by the way, we get that comes from Jesus Christ who declares us righteous. Christ died for the ungodly, that's us. And we are robed in his righteousness. That's how we are saved from the wrath of God. But here, Ezekiel's saying, don't be deceived just because you know Daniel or because you know someone spiritual, <clears throat> that's not gonna save you. So uh, watch out. Yet verse 22, behold, therein shall be left a remnant that shall be brought forth, both sons and daughters. Behold, they shall come forth unto you and you shall see their way and their doings and you shall be comforted concerning the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem, even concerning all that I have brought upon it. And they shall comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. And you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, saith the Lord God. I believe the New International Version, what does it say there? Uh, you know, uh, conduct and actions. They, uh, you'll be comforted when you see their conduct and their actions. Now, this is a tricky uh, bit of phrasing, but here's what it's saying. Um, Ezekiel sitting there in Babylon, he says, by the way, there's a remnant that's gonna come. And he's talking about that third wave in uh, 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar would bring the last group of Jews over to Babylon. The Jews that are in Babylon are gonna be tempted to say, oh, that's so unfair. It's so sad that, the, that the, these people are being dragged over here by Nebuchadnezzar and, and they died in the famine and their skeletons are laying on the hills of Jerusalem and they're so sad, but they're gonna be comforted from that sorrow when they see how horrible these people behaved. Uh, Ezekiel says, you'll see it. When they get here, you'll go, oh, <laughs> we understand why the Lord did all that and they deserved it. Um, this is an interesting observation that Ezekiel's making that Basically, everybody's gonna say, let me just say a little phrase. They're gonna say, righteous and true are the judgments of the Lord. Does that ring a bell? Because that's what's gonna happen at the end. When, when, uh, when people are being judged and the wrath of God is being poured out on Christ-rejecting sinful world, there's this temptation for us to say, oh, it's so sad that people and, are gonna be in such horrible times of the tribulation and even the great white throne. It's so sad that those people are gonna be thrown into Gehenna, the lake of fire and hell. That's so sad. But as it turns out, 
when we see the whole big picture, we're gonna say righteous and true are his judgments. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and say, he is in fact the Lord. Nobody is gonna be able to say, that's not fair. When they see it and, and we see the whole big picture, we will be comforted. I think that's the same language that Ezekiel's given. He's saying, you guys will be comforted when you see how bad these people were. You'll say, oh yeah, they kind of deserved everything they got. Can you imagine getting to that place? Because right now it's hard for me to even fathom thinking that way. The only reason I attempt to is because the Bible says that's what we're all gonna say. No one will question God when we see the big picture. And that's a good thing for us to remember for the here and now. When something happens to someone, you say, well, why did that happen to them? Don't know, but righteous and true are his judgments. And we should still be compassionate and helpful, but we should never say, that's just not fair. Um, you might say the world's not fair, but, but really, thank the Lord, we don't get what we deserve. What would be fair is for you and I to be in death and hell for all eternity. But God in his grace will save anyone who repents of their sins and turns to the Lord. And, 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 and we'll be marveling, not as much that they didn't make it into heaven, we'll be marveling that we did, but, but we'll acknowledge it was because of him. Righteous and true are his judgments. So in sort of a microcosm, the Jews are gonna see that uh, when they get there, the third wave arrives in Babylon, the Jews will go, yeah, I see it now. They deserve what they got. That's amazing that they're gonna get to that place. Well, chapter 15, we looked at on Sunday, where we looked at the, the, the true vine, the fruitful vine versus the degenerate plant. And Ezekiel says, Israel, you've become a fruitless, worthless vine. Um, and we learned how to avoid that and to be fruitful on Sunday. And God cares about fruit. And we looked at that. If you missed that study, you can look at it on YouTube, Athey Creek's YouTube page, or you can go to our website and it's right there on the front page as you scroll down um, uh, about bearing good fruit. Well, in chapter 16 now, um, we're gonna have perhaps one of the most picturesque descriptions of Israel's debauchery, maybe perhaps in all the Bible. God is about to reveal through Ezekiel the horrible heart, the horrible condition of Israel. And I, there may not be any chapter that puts it worse than Ezekiel chapter 16. <clears throat> and it, the thing that's tough is it's got 63 verses. Uh, I, I wish that the, the uh, happy verses would be 63 and then this, this uh, negative stuff would only be eight, uh, like chapter 15. But, um, but this, this gets bad. And we're gonna see it's broken down uh, at first here into three divisions. The Lord's gonna speak about Jerusalem as a baby, sort of, um, you know, rhetorically uh, as an illustration when it was birthed, Jerusalem. And then it's gonna talk about Jerusalem as a young woman. And then it's gonna talk about Jerusalem as a harlot and what it became. So it's kind of a bad story if you can picture that. So let's start with the baby part. Verse one of chapter 16. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. That's what Ezekiel's gotta do. His assignment, tell Jerusalem and all the people in Jerusalem what their abominations are. Uh, again, that's not a fun job uh, as a pastor or as a preacher, as a prophet of the Old Testament. Say, here's what are the abominations of the Lord because people, they don't wanna hear it. But Ezekiel's given that task. And I, again, I, I, I would implore um, 
you know, modern day pastors, uh, we need to be those that are willing to say, these are the things that are an abomination to the Lord. And if you're unwilling to do that, I think you're not fit for the pulpit. You need to speak the truth. Uh, now, good news, we, we can always tell the gospel message and what happens to the repentant sinner and God's grace. That's what I always land on because it's hard telling these uh, abominable sins that God calls out, even in our times. But you can always land on that good news of the gospel. Uh, but here's Ezekiel, tell Jerusalem all their abominations. Yay, here we go. Verse three. And say, thus saith the Lord God unto Jerusalem, thy birth and thy nativity is of the land of Canaan. Thy father was an Amorite and thy mother a Hittite. Um, now pause for a second. The Jews aren't really related to the Hittites. They're Canaanites. Uh, you know, remember all the Amorites, Canaanites, flashlights, all those guys that they came moving in when they're, how are they? Well, this is a rhetorical thing talking about Jerusalem as a city. It's, it's almost like personifying the city of Jerusalem. So before it was saved or really birthed, uh, in its infancy, it was run by the Canaanites. In fact, it was a group of Canaanites that were related to the Hittites uh, and the Jebusites uh, and the Amorites and all those guys. But the, the Jebusites were the ones who lived in Jerusalem uh, under the father of Jeb, Jebus. Um, and um, you can read about this, by the way, in the table of nations in Genesis chapter 10. That's where we can connect some of these dots of these people. But the Canaanites, uh, including the Jebusites, the Jebusites were the ones that had Jerusalem. So in its nativity, in its early stages, it was Jebusites. It was Canaanites that were there. By the way, do you remember when the Jews got uh, Jerusalem? It was when David um, first became king he gave the challenge uh, there, the scriptures tell us, uh, to go and take the city. Anybody who was willing of his army, remember David had the mighty men and his army. He challenged anybody who goes and takes Jerusalem, that's gonna be the, the city of David. That's gonna be my city. Whoever takes that city will be my number one commanding officer of my army. Um, and so there, that's where Joab, remember Joab in the Bible? He's the guy who gets a small little group of SEAL Team 6 guys. And they find the city, uh, they find this little hole where there was a shaft underground. It was, it was a water shaft. It might have been a sewage shaft. We don't know for sure, uh, either one. But it, there was a shaft, the Bible says, and Joab took his little army and they shimmied up the shaft. They went up this shaft through rock uh, and, and came and popped out of the city uh, and uh, took the city from the inside out. And that's how David conquered Jerusalem. And so Joab became the commanding officer of the army. Um, when we go to Israel, we go and see that shaft. It's, it's a shaft called Warren's Shaft. A guy by the name of Warren discovered it way back in the 1800s. Um, but um, that shaft is very probably the very shaft that Joab shimmied up. It's really cool. And it would have been very difficult, by the way, to shimmy up that shaft if you look at it. But he did, he took the city and David became the king of Jerusalem. It became the city of David. Um, by the way, some of the best archeological digs in the world right now are happening right there uh, around Warren's shaft and Hezekiah's tunnel and the old city of David. Man, if you haven't been to Israel for, I'm gonna even say five years, uh, they've dug up so much since you were last there. It's amazing, like to go see the city of David. It's one of the most impressive um, archeological digs in the world, in my opinion. 
But all that to say, that's, that's what happened here. So the birth, the nativity of Jerusalem was Canaanites uh, run by the Jebusites. And that's why it's, it's saying that here in verse three. And there in verse four, uh, as for thy nativity, Jerusalem, in the day thou wast born, thy navel was not cut, neither wast thou washed in water to supple thee. Thou wast not salted at all, nor swaddled at all. None I pity thee to do any of these unto thee, to have compassion upon thee, but thou wast cast out into the open field to the loathing of thy person in the day that thou wast born. And when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. Yea, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. In Bible times, they didn't have abortion as we do, but they would do a similar thing. If they didn't want a child, they would take it, leave it connected to the placenta and not wash it, and they would just throw it out into a field and leave it there to die. That's the way they did it in those days. And that's the imagery the Lord gives as what an abomination and how Jerusalem starts. Um, the, 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 the umbilical cord was not cut. The baby was not washed and cuddled and swaddled, um, salted. What, what did they do to put salt on a baby? The idea is they used to wash babies with a mixture of salt water and they felt the salt was good for the skin and was purifying and disinfecting even. That's the way they looked at it in those days. So they would wash a baby in a mild solution of salt water and uh, get it all cleaned up and then put it in swaddling clothes. But this, this is a horrible picture that God paints and says, this was your beginning, Jerusalem. You were dead. You were born aborted, really, you might say. But I said, the Lord says, live. And because God said live, Jerusalem lived. Isn't that interesting? Now, the funny thing about this is um, as tonight, Jerusalem is being attacked as we speak. Rockets are flying from Gaza over into Jerusalem and in Tel Aviv. And the world harps against Jerusalem and, and Israel. But it always amazes me the world's um, uh, naivety when it comes to Jerusalem's history. Jerusalem, according to the Bible, God, not war, of the Quran. In fact, Jerusalem's not mentioned one time in the Quran. The, the Muslims cared nothing for Jerusalem until not that long ago. The Grand Mufti Yasser Arafat's great uncle declared um, that Jerusalem was the third most holy site in all of Islam. That was in recent history. Um, Jerusalem has been mentioned over 800 times in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And um, it's also got the delineation where God says, Jerusalem is mine. When did God adopt Jerusalem as his? Right here, when the baby was thrown out into the field to die, God said, nope, live. And then he says, Jerusalem is mine. God's got his name on Jerusalem. And the reason I tell you this dramatic beginning of Jerusalem is because um, it starts to get, get you a sense of how important Jerusalem really is to God. Now we're gonna hear how Jerusalem becomes a prostitute and all this, but God still loves Jerusalem and has a plan for Jerusalem. Uh, and we'll see this, but <clears throat> keep this in the back of your mind as the world says, Jerusalem should be given to the Palestinians. Ridiculous. Historically, politically, spiritually, like you name the way, um, people do not have a clue when it comes to the history of Jerusalem. 
<clears throat> but this is the way the Lord says, live. So that's Jerusalem in its infancy or as a baby. Now we're gonna shift gears and the Lord's gonna describe Jerusalem as a young woman. Verse seven, I have caused thee to multiply as the bud of the field and thou wast increased and waxen great and thou art come to excellent ornaments. Thy breasts are fashioned, thy hair is grown whereas thou wast naked and bare. Now, when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love and I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. What became mine? Jerusalem. Then verse nine, washed I thee with water. Yea, I thoroughly washed away thy blood from thee and anointed thee with oil, which is speaking of filling with the spirit. Um, I clothed thee also with broidered work and shod thee with badger's skin and girded thee about with fine linen. What does fine linen mean? Righteousness in the Bible. And I covered thee with silk. I decked thee also with ornaments and I put bracelets upon thy hands and a chain upon thy neck. I put a jewel on thy forehead and earrings in thine ears and beautiful crown upon thine head. Thus wast thou decked with gold and silver and thy raiment was of fine linen and silk and broidered work. Thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil, and thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom. And thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty, for it was perfect, though uh, through my comeliness, which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. Um, question, when did Jerusalem reach this beauty and this prosperity? The clothing described here is royal. You know, the Jerusalem's like this princess who becomes this glorious queen. And the Lord says, I did this for Jerusalem. And so you have to ask the question, when did this happen? Uh, if you're guessing, uh, and if you said probably during the reign of Solomon, you were right. Jerusalem, you know, was taken when David became the king. And then David pretty much conquered everybody around there. <laughs> David wanted to build a temple in Jerusalem, remember that? But he couldn't because he was, a, war, he was a, a military man. And David had to stay in his lane. Remember David said, I'm gonna build a temple to the Lord. And Nathan the prophet finally had to come and say, no, David, no, you're not. So David, when he heard he couldn't build the temple, he went around and conquered everybody, did what he was good at. If you read the next chapter there uh, in 2 Samuel, it says, and David, killed and slew and slaughtered and you know, wiped out and uh, uh, took spoil. And like, like it's just this chapter of David just wiping everybody out around them and he gathers huge wealth. And then he stacks up all the wealth for Solomon. Solomon comes and finally finishes the temple in Jerusalem. And it become, gold has become like commonplace in Jerusalem. Silver, the Bible says, during the reign of Solomon became like gravel. You just throw silver on the ground because they had so much silver. It was worthless because they had so much of it. Um, people, this even says here in our text, the heathen came to see you. Remember the, you know, um, the queen of, you know, uh, there came and uh, the queen of Sheba, she came and visited, uh, you know, Solomon and saw his wealth and was so blown away. Like people came from all over the world to see Solomon and his glorious wealth. And the Lord says, I did that. But it would also be Solomon, by the way, who would start the downward spiral 
from Jerusalem being this glorious queen that God had set up to, do, to be successful. And by the way, this goes with chapter 15. Remember the Lord said, I planted you a noble vine. A, a, a fruitful vineyard was my plan. And I tilled the soil and nurtured you and you were ready to go. But you ruined it, the Lord says. That's what's happening here. The Lord says, I had put this upon you, this glorious uh, you know, royal city, Jerusalem. But that brings us to the third description. Now she comes from being this beautiful queen of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is, uh, now to being a harlot. Verse 15. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty and played the harlot because of thine renown and pourest out thy fornications on everyone that passed by, his it was. And of thy garments thou didst take and deck thy, uh, thy high places with diverse colors and playedest the harlot thereupon. The like shall not come, neither shall it be so. Thou hast also taken thy fair jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given thee, and madest to thyself images of men, and didst commit whoredom with them. And tookest thy broidered garments, and coveredest them. And when thou hast set mine oil and mine incense before them, my meat, which uh, also which I gave thee, fine flour and oil, and honey, wherewith I fed thee. Thou hast even set it before them for a sweet savor, and thus it was, saith the Lord God. In other words, God gave them the oil and the incense and the flour, and these people said, thanks God, and they worshiped the pagan deities with the same things that God provided for them. Boy, we do the same thing. And so, moreover, verse 20, thou hast taken thy sons and thy daughters whom thou hast borne unto me, and these hast thou sacrificed unto them to be devoured. Is this of thy whoredoms a small matter? Boy, we gotta ask our own culture, is this a small matter that we abort babies? 61 million babies since Roe versus Wade. It's gonna be interesting because the issue is coming up again in our culture, and I hope that the corruption that happened uh, in, in the Supreme Court with Roe versus Wade way back there in the 70s. Um, I hope that somebody uh, comes to their senses. Uh, as medical science has come so far, there's no denying that abortion is evil. Just, just looking at it on a moral medical level, let alone a spiritual um, biblical level. So my prayer is that we wake up as a nation and figure out we're murdering babies. It's worse than them throwing it out in a field. Um, uh, like they did in this story, we do worse today. Um, and these are the gods, Chemosh and Moloch, where they would take their babies and sacrifice. That's what the Lord's saying. And, and he asks rhetorically, he says, is this, your, is this your whoredom a small matter? And the answer is rhetorically, it's not a small matter to God. God's saying, this is a big deal that you're killing your children. That's what God says here. Um, and I believe he's gonna say that to our culture as well. Verse 21, that thou hast slain my children and delivered them to cause them to pass through the fire for them. And in all thine abominations and thy whoredoms, thou hast not remembered the days of thy youth when thou wast naked and bare and was polluted in thy blood. And it came to pass after all thy wickedness, woe, woe unto thee, saith the Lord God. Do you get the sense this is heavy? I'm not even sure I can read this with a heaviness that is required because 
God is in this heavy place saying, you've been a whore against me and you've prostituted all the things that I've given to you. And, and now you're killing your own children. Woe, woe unto you, saith the Lord, Jehovah God. Whew. These are heavy words. Verse 24, that thou hast also built unto thee an eminent place and hath made thee a high place in every street. Thou hast built thy high place at every head of the way and hast made thy beauty to be abhorred and hast opened thy feet to everyone that passed by and multiplied thy whoredoms. Thou hast also committed fornication with the Egyptians, thy neighbors, great of flesh, and hath increased thy whoredoms to provoke me in anger. If you remember in Isaiah 30 and 31, the Lord says, oh, rebellious children of Israel, you turn to Egypt rather than turn to me. And so it's kind of a heavy, heavy word. He's calling them out on all the abominations that they had done, just like he told them to do there in verse two. He's doing it. Um, verse 27, behold, therefore, I have stretched out my hand over thee and have diminished thine ordinary food and delivered thee unto the will of them that hate thee, the Babylonians. Um, and to the daughter and the daughters of the Philistines, which were ashamed of thy lewd way, um, that uh, thou hast played the whore also with the Assyrians, because thou wast unsatiable. Um, by the way, um, a sign of rebellion against God is to be unsatiable. Um, the word there might be discontent, uh, never happy with what God has given. Here, God gave them everything they needed to be successful and blessed and they were insatiable. They kept driving to find a greater pleasure still. And, and I think that happens in our culture today where we get delirious with a insatiable drive uh, to, to get more pleasure and more happiness and more wealth or, or material goods. And if I can just have more, 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 then I'll be happy. This was the condition of Israel. They were given everything. Gold was plus, uh, plenty, silver was like gravel, but they're like, we need more and sexual satisfaction, more, more, more. And this got them into this place where God's calling them out. It says, you were, verse 28, unsatiable. Yea, thou hast played the harlot with them and yet couldst not be satisfied. Um, when Mick Jagger saying, I can't get no satisfaction. Um, what an anthem uh, in the world at that time that has only gotten worse today. Uh, but that's the mark of the unbeliever, no satisfaction. The true Christian, I think, if they're honest and, and healthy, they're gonna say Jesus satisfies. And Jesus is all you need. Um, he satisfies your thirsty soul. Well, they said, we can't get no satisfaction. Verse 29, um, thou hast moreover multiplied thy fornication with the land of Canaan to the Cal and, and to Chaldea, and yet thou wast not satisfied herewith. How weak is thine heart, saith the Lord God, seeing thou doest all these things, the work of an uh, imperious, whorish woman, in that thou buildest thine eminent place in the head of every way and makest thine high place in every street and hast not been as an harlot in uh, that thou scornest hire, but as a wife that committeth adultery, which taketh strangers instead of her husband. They give gifts to all whores, but thou givest thy gifts to all thy lovers and hirest them that they may come unto thee on every side for thy whoredom. And the contrary is in thee from other women in thy whoredoms, whereas none followeth 
thee to commit whoredoms in that thou givest a reward and no reward is given unto thee, therefore thou art contrary. Wherefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord, thus saith the Lord God, because thy filthiness was poured out and thy nakedness discovered through thy whoredoms with thy lovers, with thy, all the idols of thy abominations and by the blood of thy children, which thou did give unto them. Behold, therefore I will gather all thy lovers with whom thou hast taken pleasure and with all them that thou hast loved and all them that thou hast hated. And I will even gather them round against thee and will discover thy nakedness unto them that they may see all thy nakedness. And I will judge thee as a woman that breaketh wedlock and shed blood are judged. And I will give thee blood in fury and jealousy. Whew, heavy, heavy language here. Um, this is hard for us because today we, um, we struggle uh, with seeing any problem with adultery. We live in a culture that sort of says, yeah, people sleep around. <laughs> so I had an affair, you know, sorry. Uh, hopefully it's not gonna ruin our marriage. Um, you know, this idea of the, the wife being an adulterous woman, um, you know, that's what we make movies about and people celebrate uh, those kinds of things. And um, so it loses its teeth just a little bit here in this chapter. But if you would, this is like the Lord saying, you've done the worst thing you could ever do. Jerusalem, you have made yourself like a prostitute, but not a prostitute, worse. You're the wife who's married to a husband who, who will sleep around with everybody around the neighborhood. And, um, and I'm gonna call you out for that. And we, we kind of say, see, I, I know some of you are thinking, this is such a male chauvinistic book talking about this woman. No, there, the Bible doesn't pull any punches with men either. There's all kinds of things about stupid men and men that do dumb things. But here the Lord uses this uh, analogy of Israel made up of men and women that live in Jerusalem who are acting like the prostitute, the adulterous wife. And this is, in some ways, it seems that God is, is speaking the worst thing that happens in humanity. Isn't it interesting that the Lord um, says, I hate divorce. Uh, there's only a few things God says he hates. Divorce is one of them. And the only legitimate cause for divorce in the Bible, according to the Bible, is for unfaithfulness in marriage when a husband or a wife is committing adultery. And so here God is speaking one of the worst things that can happen. He's saying, this is what Israel, you have done to me. Um, heartbreaking. I, I, I fear that our culture doesn't really feel the gravity of this horrific thing because we're an adulterous generation. It's become commonplace. We celebrate adultery. We love fornication. And so we're like, what's the big deal here, Lord? So she sleeps around a little bit, whatever. Um, no, you've got to understand this is the most abominable thing that Israel has done to God and he's using this as an analogy. Well, he goes on in verse 39, and I will also give thee into their hand and they shall throw down thine eminent place and shall break down thy high places. They shall strip thee also of thy clothes. They shall take thy fair jewels and leave thee naked and bare. Speaking of the Babylonians, um, you might also include the Assyrians 150 years earlier. We'll talk about that perhaps in a minute. Verse 40, they also shall bring up a company against thee and they shall stone thee with stones and thrust, thrust thee through with their swords. And that did happen. Men, women, children slain in Jerusalem with the sword. And when they shall burn thine houses with fire and execute judgments upon thee in the sight of many women, and I will cause thee to cease from playing the harlot 
and thou also shalt give no hire any more. So will I make my fury toward thee to rest, and my jealousy shall depart from thee, and I will be quiet and will be no more angry, because thou hast not remembered the days of thy youth, but hast fretted me in all these things. Behold, therefore, I will recompense thy way upon thine head, saith the Lord God, and thou shalt not commit this lewdness above all thine abominations. The Lord says, I'm gonna put this, an end to this, uh, but it's gonna be brutal is, is the idea. And it's gonna cost them. Uh, Jer- Jerusalem's gonna be destroyed. Most of the people are gonna be killed. Just a remnant of Israelis are gonna be left. Well, verse 44, behold, everyone that useth Proverbs shall use this proverb against thee saying, as is the mother, so is her daughter. Thou art thy mother's daughter that loatheth her husband and her children. And thou art the sister of thy sisters, which loathe their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. Again, speaking of Jerusalem, remember we're metaphorically talking about Jerusalem. And thine elder sister is Samaria. Your elder sister is Samaria, mark that. Um, and she and her daughters that dwell in thy, at thy left hand and thy younger sister that dwelleth at thy right hand is Sodom and her daughters. So who are the sister cities of Jerusalem? Sodom and Samaria. Samaria was wiped out by the Assyrians 150 years earlier and they were taken into captivity. But there was a small group of people that mixed themselves with Assyrians and Jews and they became the Samaritan people. And by the time Jesus came along the scene, remember the story of the good Samaritan or the Samaritan woman? Um, They were hated by the Jews because they were sort of considered to be half-breed people, Jewish Assyrians mixed. And uh, the Jews loathed the, the, the Samaritans. Um, but they were judged. The, the land of Samaria was wiped out by the Assyrians. Um, and then, of course, Sodom, you all know, as the city that was destroyed by God with fire and brimstone during the time of Lot. Well, we're going to hear more about that. Verse 47, Yet thou hast not walked after their ways, nor done after their abominations, but as if that were a very little thing, Thou wast corrupted more than they in all thy ways. Oh, do you hear what God just said through Ezekiel? Sodom and Gomorrah was nothing compared to you, Jerusalem. Jerusalem by this time, see, we're still having a hard time feeling, oh, I feel so bad for the people of Jerusalem and all this stuff that's happening. But these guys make Sodom and Gomorrah look like Mr. Rogers. Uh, like, Like this is amazing how horrible Jerusalem had become and God's calling out their abominations. Verse 48, as I live, saith the Lord God, Sodom, thy sister hath not done, nor she nor her daughters, as thou hast done, and and thy uh, daughters. Question, quiz time. What did Sodom do? What was Sodom famous for that made them destroyed? If you said homosexuality, you are wrong. There was rampant homosexuality because of their pride and because of their sin. But the, the, the sin that made Sodom and Gomorrah go down in fire and brimstone was listed right here. Here's where the Bible tells us why God conquered or crushed Sodom. It says right here, verse 49, behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Here it is, pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and and the needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. It's funny how we think of America as somehow better than uh, Sodom. 
I think it was Billy Graham's wife uh, who said, if the Lord doesn't judge San Francisco, he's gonna owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Um, and she's making the point that we have surpassed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the Jews did back in this day. But I think the United States, we, the, the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, when you look at this, pride, is, is, America, is America a prideful nation? Well, all the other nations think so. They call it the ugly American. Um, what about the fullness of bread? Yeah, we've got all, we're the richest country in the world. Um, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness was in our, uh, idleness is the devil's workshop. We do stuff that we shouldn't do. And so we sit around doing horrible things. Like the things we do today with our idle time is uh, makes, the, the, makes even the sodomite blush. Um, and here's an interesting one. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Boy, the gap between wealthy and total poverty is, is widening here in America. And we're seeing all these homeless tents and people um, you know, Portland is just overrun with crazy, just homelessness and poverty. And we wonder what's going on. It, it has to do with this haughtiness and this, uh, this attitude of pride. And the Lord says they've committed abominations, so I took them out. I believe that's coming during the tribulation period. The, the whole world's gonna be judged. But man, I feel like the United States, we're leading the way on this one. Well, um, the Lord took him away. So verse 51, neither has Samaria committed half of thy sins, but thou hast multiplied thy abominations more than they and hast justified thy sisters in all thine abominations which thou hast done. Thou also, which hast judged thy sisters, bear thine own shame for thy sins that thou hast committed more abominable than they. Um, they are more righteous than you. Yea, be thou confounded also and bear thy shame in that thou hast justified thy sisters. Man, you're making Sodom and Samaria look good is what, what Ezekiel's saying through uh, the Lord's word. Verse 53, when I shall bring again their captivity, the captivity of Sodom and her daughters and the captivity of Samaria and her daughters, then will I bring again the captivity of thy captives in the midst of them that thou mayest bear thine own shame and mayest be confounded in all that thou hast done in that thou hast art a comfort unto them. Uh, they're, they're a comfort like they were, that we talked about earlier, comforting on, well, the Lord is righteous. We don't feel so bad anymore for these people. That's how they're comforting to them. Verse 55, when thy sister Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former estate and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former estate, then thou uh, and thy daughters shall return to your former estate. Um, now pause for a second. Question, did Samaria return to her former estate? You might be able to say yes, because after the you know, Assyrian con uh, conquest, all that, years later, the Jews and some of those Samaritans, uh, the half Jew, half Assyrian came back and Samaria, even to this day, is a thriving place. But the thing that's interesting here is has Sodom returned to its former uh, glory? Well, the answer is no. After the fire and brimstone thing, we don't even know where Sodom was. I talked about that earlier. Um, but the question remains, will Sodom be brought back to its former estate? And I believe it's possible, yes, because of this prophecy. When Sodom gets back to her former estate, so will Israel and Jerusalem, it says here. And so that hasn't happened yet. Uh, Samaria, you can make the argument that it has. Sodom hasn't, but when that happens, I wonder if during the millennial kingdom, somehow Sodom will be resurfaced. Uh, as a city during the millennial kingdom. 
Uh, that's what we speculate on what the Lord is saying here through Ezekiel. Um, so verse 56, for thy sister Sodom was not mentioned by the mouth in the day of thy pride. Before thy wickedness was discovered as at the time of thy reproach of the daughters of Syria and all that are round about her, the daughters of the Philistines, which despise thee round about, thou hast borne thy lewdness and thine abominations, saith the Lord. For thus saith the Lord God, I will even deal with thee as thou hast done, which hath despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Man, the, the Jews have broken the covenant with God and he calls them out. Now, this is one of the heaviest chapters in the Bible about the destruction of Jerusalem and the sins and the abominations. But even with all of that, I'm thankful for the ending of this chapter. Verses 60 through 63. Nevertheless, this is a great word, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth and I will establish unto thee an everlasting covenant. How long? Everlasting uh, this is where the, we were talking Sunday about the replacement theology uh, wackoness. God has an everlasting covenant, even though the Jews were worse than Sodom. Like we could even give you the argument, the Jews did all these horrible things, but guess what? The Lord says, even still, nevertheless, I'm establishing my everlasting covenant with you. Um, verse 61, when thou shalt remember thy ways and be ashamed, when thou shalt receive thy sisters, thine elder and thy younger, and I will give them unto thee for daughters, but not by thy covenant. I will establish my covenant with thee, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. This is that you know Abrahamic covenant that God made with the Jews saying, I will bless you and I will make you an everlasting covenant where I will give you a king and that king will rule and reign for an everlasting kingdom. This is the coming of Jesus, who's gonna rule over Jerusalem um, and this is the covenant of God to a very sinful group of people. So I will establish, verse 62, my covenant with thee and thou shalt know that I am Jehovah, the Lord. Verse 63, that thou mayest remember and be confounded and never open thy mouth anymore because of thy shame when I am pacified toward thee for all that thou hast done, saith the Lord God. Um, when... Um, when is God pacified towards sinners? That's, that's the ending of this chapter. He says, you know, when I am pacified toward thee for all that thou hast done, when would that happen? Well, the answer is Jesus dying on the cross. Romans chapter five, uh, verse one says this. Um, I'll just read it to you, Romans 5, one. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, uh, for, uh, Colossians 1, verse 20 and uh, 21 says this, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. That's the thing. This last verse of Ezekiel chapter, uh, you know, uh, 16 is when he says, when I am pacified toward thee for all that thou hast done, when's that going to happen? It's when Jesus came and died on the cross for the sins of the world, Jews included. Jesus died for the sins of the Jews. 
But the Jews remain in darkness and in blindness right now because blindness has happened to them. But there's coming a day where the Jews will see that Jesus was the Messiah. And even though they were the most sinful of all, when you read chapter 16 of Ezekiel, you think, man, worse than Sodom, worse than the Samaritans. And yet the Lord says, I'm still gonna keep my covenant. Um, so we end on a high note, praise the Lord. Uh, thankful that the Lord is merciful. And if he can be merciful to the Jews who did these things, guess what? He can be merciful to you. If you accept Jesus, die on the cross, if, if you believe that he rose from the grave and you become a believer and a, a, a Christian, you too can be saved by his grace. Uh, his, even though we're sinners, uh, you even could give, some of you might give the Jews a run for the money on your sins. Uh, you, you may have had an abortion uh, and you think, oh man, I, I've committed the unpardonable sin. No, if you confess your sins, he's faithful to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And you can be part of that everlasting covenant through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray tonight as we close our study off for the evening, I pray that you'd help us to um, just recognize our own sinful tendencies, um, to see the abominations of the world that we live to recognize, Lord, the, the same uh, things that we're drawn to culturally, nationally. Forgive us, Lord, as a nation for following the way of Sodom and even the way of Jerusalem. But Lord, I pray that we, your people, would be given to, to believing your word, humbling ourselves, repenting of sin, following your truth. Help us, Lord. And when our spirit is willing and our flesh is weak, give us strength, Lord, to be victorious, to walk in your truth. So bless these people who've taken this time on this Wednesday night to carve out, study the scriptures, bless them. May your word bring forth good fruit in Jesus' name, amen.